G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, RD. Today is Monday. We're recording on a Monday, 21st of August. And our topics this week are the Greens Party, the political party, the Greens, they're eyeing up Queensland and they think they've got a good shot at taking... Well, they think the premier, uh, the the becoming the premier, but we'll see. Uh, I have a lot to say on this subject, <laughs> uh, and of course, we have our second topic. There are calls for a nationwide end to native logging at face value. That probably sounds like a good idea, but we'll get into the nitty gritty details a little bit later on, and maybe why it's not as good as you'd think. Mm. Of course, we have our two ticks town talk in between, and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deep and finish off, as always, with our Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, over the last couple of weeks, we wanted to shout out some of the countries around the world where our listeners are located. This week, we wanted to say konnichiwa to our friends in Japan. But our deep, what's been going on with you? Konnichiwa, DK-san, and uh, hello to G'day to everyone in Japan, our listeners. It was nice to see a, a few of you, you pop up in the statistics. Uh, I'm, I've travelled up to uh, Sydney this, this week, just catching up with, uh, with family. I stopped in at Bowral last night. It's about an hour and a half out of Sydney. It's one of those places you can sort of do a, a, a run, get up there in yeah, about nine hours or so. So it's it's a achievable in the day. It means you get to sort of get in a little bit earlier in the afternoon, put the feet up, and you've only got a one and a half hour run to Sydney the next morning. So I tend to like doing that. I was finding that uh, yeah, sort of get up here, and if you do the whole drive in the the day, so a little bit buggered that night and the next day. So may as well stop off, have a yeah, a bit of a relax. And yeah, it's a nice part of the the world i posted a uh, yeah it is it's actually it's, it is quite a nice area down there yeah yeah it is the uh i think they call it the southern highlands if mm. i'm correct something like that and all the wattles out i'd posted a, a, a photo on the r slash australian subreddit today of one hill that i i stopped ended up doing a bit of a u-turn on the the freeway and did a turn and pulled off safely over, over to the side to Grab a picture of it. Uh, just was one of those ones that had the waddles right in the foreground and uh, going up the hill, just that uh, disappearing faint yellow, which, yeah, I particularly like the, the waddles. And this season seems to be a good flowering season for them. Um, I don't know how it is up your way, but certainly down, certainly down where I am in Victoria, the waddles really seem to be happy this uh, year all the ones in our garden are really having a good flower and i noticed that as i was uh driving on the way up so yeah good to see a bit of uh a, a good a big a good bit of native flowering um so yeah that's basically what i've been doing just prep for for this uh trip and yeah rest of the week's all been pretty cruisy what about yourself we went um the wattles, some of them are blooming up here. Sorry, I should have answered your question. Um, hmm. Though I, I've noticed probably more aren't. I don't know if they're just not happy mm. or I don't know. I don't really know what's going on. Um, 
there aren't a huge amount of them around here, if I'm honest. You sort of have to kind of kind of go looking for them. Um, oh. They do. They do. They are native, I think, to, to all of Australia. But it's kind of like you know, they're, they're more abundant in some areas than others, sort of thing. So, yeah. Um, we have a lot of palm trees up here. So, um, and we it went depends on the type of acacia too. Um, you know, from from memory, it, it's sort of the, the type of it. Mm. changes as you get up a bit uh bit yeah. more in the north it's it's less of that you know uh like the golden wattle one. tops yeah. yeah exactly they don't yeah they're, they're a bit different up here i think i think their blooms a bit different or you're not 100 percent sure um i'm not much of a botanist so <laughs> um i this week we went uh yesterday in fact we went strawberry picking uh at mm. a strawberry farm uh just outside of bundaberg i'll give them a shout out tina berries was what it was called uh we, we had a big drive the kids drove me nuts uh and then we got to eat <laughs> as many strawberries as you possibly could and it was really good um it was a really good day out. They have a really good setup there, um, a little sort of shop, and, and you can buy – they make their own ice cream, which is really, really nice. Um, strawberry, and this year they had ginger and macadamia nut, and I got that, and it was fantastic. Mm. It was really good. Um, okay. The strawberry one was nice, but that one was something, something magical. Um Especially after a belly full of, of strawberries, something, something <laughs> a bit different was quite nice. So. Um, so, so you can eat as many strawberries as you, you like. like. You can basically go there and gorge yourself for free. Yeah, so the deal is, uh, and, and this is you know subject to change, but the deal yesterday was kids were free, which we did actually go there last year, uh, and they they that wasn't the case. I think kids were five bucks and adults were ten or something like that. Uh, this time it was kids are free and uh, adults. I think she's. I think it was five dollars for adults, so it was a little bit cheaper than last year. Um, you had to buy at at least one kilo of strawberries, um, which that was fifteen dollars a kilo. So oh, again, geez, that's all right. It's not bad pricing. It's not the cheapest, but it's also not bad. Also, you can be really picky with with yeah. the ones you keep, of course. Yeah. Um, and last year we got caught out because they give you quite a large tray, like a like a cardboard tray to to fill up. She did say, you know, don't be silly. Only put in what you want. Um, a kilo of strawberries is deceptively small. Um, Mm. And if you start piling it up, it's going to add up pretty quickly. Uh, another family that uh, weren't part of our group, but they were picking sort of alongside us, uh, those kids filled their tray up. And when their dad went to pay, <laughs> it was about $85. And she said, she was like, I warned you. And he just shrugged and was like, it's all good. You know, it's 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 all part of the fun. So, um, yeah. which was basically what, what happened to us last year. Ours wasn't quite as much as that. I think it was... 45 or 55 something like that so this year i was like i've got the part i've got the tray you kids just go and eat as many as you want <laughs> and i'll be really selective about what we keep and we kept about just over a kilo of strawberries so um we had something to come home with i was going to make some jam uh but before we started i went into the shop and saw that they sold some jam and i thought their jam is probably better than the jam i could make oh. so <laughs> I'll, I'll save some strawberries and i'll buy the jam instead so um but all in all, a really great, great day out. Though if you do go to a strawberry picking farm, um, word of caution, 
if you eat too many, you'll get a really bad tummy ache. Uh, and, you know, I'm a big, tough Aussie bloke, and oh. I got a tummy ache because I ate too many strawberries. <laughs> so, um, if you eat half a kilo of strawberries on an empty stomach, uh, yep, it's it's not going to sit well. But yeah, it was a lot surprise. of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah. Look, it was it was a lot of fun and and um, a great day out. Great day, uh, especially if you've got kids. Um, try and get if you do go sort of anywhere in the country. Try and get there as early as you can. Uh, obviously, you know, t- to beat the rush, but also as the sun heats up, the strawberries you know, are out in the sun and they do warm up as well. And yeah. warm strawberries aren't nearly as nice as cold strawberries. So no. um, the earlier you can get to them, the colder it is, the better the strawberries are. Um, but all in all, a great time. And, and if you get an opportunity to do, I think, any sort of fruit picking. I know around Sydney uh, yeah. there are some some orchards where you can pick apples and things like that. Um so if you if you get the opportunity to do something like that, I, I highly recommend it. It's a great day out. Well, sounds like a good sounds like a good time. Sounds like a good place to have uh, taken the kids and let's face it, filling up on uh, strawberries rather than lollies. <laughs> I think probably better. Uh, I don't yeah, know. Maybe I, I, maybe not. <laughs> well, you'd like to hope so. You'd, you'd like to hope so. Well, so yeah, provide, provided you uh, don't go over the top like Dad did. So, <laughs> <laughs> I was hungry. I, hadn't, I didn't have any breakfast deliberately to fill up on strawberries. Probably not the best, oh, best thing. No. <laughs> not, a, not a good one. <laughs> Speaking of good times, uh, there is a so-called green wave that could be on the horizon uh, in Queensland, and it's going to spell trouble for Labor and the LNP. The impact of the Greens and federal politics has been on full display over the last week as Prime Minister Anthony Albanese addresses hundreds of Labour faithful in Brisbane. He said, The Greens' political party are not interested in solving the problem at all. They just want the issue, the campaign and the social media content. This was at the LNP's National Conference it's the first time it's been in Queensland for the last 50 years. So a bit of a big deal. And I don't think that was a coincidence, mm. which we'll put a pin on that. We'll come back to that in a minute. Mr. Albanese was taking a jab at the Greens for making memes and social media about the housing affordability in Australia. The housing crisis is a hot topic. Uh Big issue that intensified again this week as the National Cabinet met in Brisbane to consider the rental market and housing supply. The meeting was largely forced due to the pressure from the Greens, who won't support the federal government's housing and fund legislation without meaningful action on rent freezes. Queensland helped deliver the Greens a historic result and more power in Canberra at the federal election last year. Stephen Bates won the seat of Brisbane from the LNP. Max Chandler Matha took the traditional Labor seat of Griffith. Griffith and Elizabeth Watson Brown topped the LNP in the once safe seat of Ryan. The Central Queensland based Penny Allman Payne was elected as the state's second Greens senator. So Queensland state politics doesn't have a lot of greens uh in it but queensland federal politics at the last election really really 
uh, clinched a few more seats. This is also presenting a challenge for Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. Her Labour government at next year's federal election and the Greens are setting their sights on a number of their inner city seats, particularly targeting the seats of McConnell, Cooper, Greenslopes, Miller and Blumba, which are seats held currently by Labour state MPs, uh, but some of those are represented by the Greens at federal level. So from the Greens' point of view, that's kind of a a no-brainer. The Greens hold two seats in Queensland. Michael Berkman is the first Greens MP elected to Parliament in the seat of... I don't know how to pronounce this. I think it's Mywer in 2017. And Amy McMahon won the South Brisbane in 2020 from former Deputy Premier Jackie Trad. Uh, Max Chandler Mathis said in 2020, many voters wanted to reward Ms. Palaget's government for the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, but that effect had now worn off. I disagree. And we'll put a pin in that because we'll come back to that. He says the Queensland Labor Party are really on the back foot. So I think this coming state election is probably our best shot we've ever had of getting into the balance of power. Former Queensland Labor Speaker and QUT adjunct Associate Professor John Mickle said it was too hard to predict the outcome of the state election more than 12 months out. But the Greens' success wouldn't be as easy as translating the success on a national, on a federal level. He said, coming the next state election, it will depend on what people are voting on. If it's a vote against the government, then all sorts of things can come into play here. To what extent do people want to make an em- empathetic change? Or do people want their, to park their vote because they're uncertain of the opposition? Something to note, eight out of the eight polls conducted in the last two years that have any sort of validity, in my opinion, hmm. uh, the highest the Greens received for first preference is 14%. 14% of voters would give Greens the first preference. Right. They actually averaged 9.47% at the 2020 election. So not particularly high. For contrast, Labor is sitting at 32% and LNP is at 38% as of the last polling. Uh, On a two-party preferred level, Labor was slightly higher than the LNP currently. But again, we all know these polling predictions uh, and these surveys don't necessarily hold a lot of water. Um, However, I think the Greens are being very aggressive here. Yep. But Queensland isn't just inner city Brisbane. You know, the, the balance of power in Queensland, Queensland has always been a bit of a political uh, wild west, if I, if I may. Mm. Mm. Brisbane obviously is the seat of the power. It's the biggest city in Queensland by a huge margin. Um, and... Sure, they currently have a few Greens seats and one in the local council in Brisbane, uh, but Green the Greens party does not really offer much to people outside the inner city. You know, um, the typical Greens voter, as we know, are, you know, traditionally younger, often, edu- you know, university-educated 
uh, voters or university students still in university. Um, that's sort of the key demographic um, in the inner city areas. I don't see a lot of you know a lot of a lot of people out in um, Cloncurry or, or Longreach or Charleville, any of these areas voting for the Greens. The, the, the party doesn't really offer them much in terms of representation. Um, in fact, in a lot of regional areas, even smaller coastal regional areas, the Greens don't even run candidates in the areas because they know that it's kind of pointless. It's not they're not the demographic that they're targeting and they don't represent that sort of electorate. So it's quite perplexing for me seeing the Greens so boastfully say that they're gonna there's gonna be a green wave in Queensland and all of this. And I'm like, I live in Queensland. I live in a regional area and I don't know what you're talking about. No one yeah, here. Will- that's the difference though. I think you're. I I get what you're you're saying. There was two. I noted them down while you were talking. Uh, and I know you've got a couple of things you want to. You've got opinion that you want to go back. But on this topic, uh, the two notes I had are inner city seats and power. Uh, it doesn't really matter about the regional vote if you can control the city vote, because if you can get. Um, if you can get the seats in the urban areas, it gives you a say in what happens in the state overall. So to me, it's a particularly smart thing. It's also it's also ironic that the Greens Party, which you know mentally the narrative is in, in environment and you know butterflies flying by the the, the river and old growth forests talking to um, hippies on ayahuasca and everyone's all sort of kumbaya. But the reality is, it's um, yeah, lattes, EDMs, and uh, council backfighting. And there's obviously a little bit of hyperbole there, but only one of the things I just said. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a particular. Uh, to me, I think it's a a clever play. I think the Greens at the moment are outsmarting Labor. And liberal, and you made the comments about the um, percentage of results that they they're getting in comparison to what Labor and the LNP are getting. Yes, they're small in terms of how much they've been growing, and in terms of a percentage of the actual overall vote. I think they're becoming more and more of a a force to be reckoned with, and if they can replicate their their leverage and it really is leverage i mean you're a you're a uh, a finance guy and understand you know once you start to have leverage in there you have power beyond what your actual numbers are and we're seeing that in this housing debate at the moment with um the greens pushing back and saying no the lay labor doesn't have the option at the moment to say bugger off we're going ahead with it anyway Greens are using their their leverage, and look, I made no secret before on this uh, the the podcast. I'm not a big fan of the the Greens, but I'll give credit where credit's due. And this looks like a a sensible power play to me. And I don't think it matters that the regionals aren't being as uh, targeted as the inner city seats. 
I think you're right. I think I'm reading into this too much because they're calling it a quote unquote green wave. A green wave to me suggests that they're going to win a significant amount of seats. Uh, but you're you're probably right. There, they're probably their strategy is to to win enough seats to upset very much like they're doing at the federal level, where mm. they can hold the 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 balance of power with the the Labor government um, and sort of force their hand. However, I think what they misunderstand is Queensland's probably going to turn blue in the next election. Um, it's it's very unlikely that they're going to be sitting there trying to negotiate with a Labour government in Queensland. I think they're going to be sitting there trying to negotiate with an LNP government, which isn't going to entertain negotiations at all. Um, they're not going to... You know, the LNP is not... It's a particularly conservative government, um, and in Queensland, probably more so than other places. Queensland traditionally is quite conservative, um, and... Yeah, I don't I don't see this happening in the way that they think. I actually think it's it's pretty I look at this from a quite an arrogant kind of view. Um mm -hmm. you know, people like uh uh Max Chandler Matha um saying things that that you know, the Queensland pa uh Queensland Labor Party are on the back foot and that many voters wanted to reward the Queensland Labor Party for their handling of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. The 2020 election happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I recall very specifically going to the voting booths, masks, social distancing, all of that kind of stuff. It was very chaotic and kind of scary, actually, because it, was, it wasn't, um, you know, post-COVID. It was very much probably even... This, the real start of the ramping up of the COVID-19 mm -hmm. pandemic and before a lot of the lockdowns and those sorts of things. So what Max Chandler Mathis said there is kind of false. That's not what happened um, because it the pandemic- It was fake news. It was fake news. <laughs> I mean, the pandemic hadn't really happened yet, really. Like not, not to the extent when we think back of the pandemic and, you know, lockdowns and all that kind of stuff. That stuff really hadn't started by by the the election. Um, the uh, election was stolen. Labor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, sorry, I, have, Queensland, like, yeah. <laughs> I have very little time uh, for, for Max Chandler Mather anyway. Um, I think he is he's very good at communicating to particularly younger uh, people about issues that he's very passionate about. I think he's very charismatic, but I also mm. think he's completely full of shit, if I'm honest, and yeah, okay. really misrepresents some of these really big issues. Um, the, the big one, and I think we may leave this to get into properly, uh, for another day, uh, because I could talk about this for a long time. But he he's currently the Greens member for um, the party member for housing, for affordable housing. And he's very much jumped into the limelight with taking on Anthony Albanese about the federal government's uh, housing reforms and things like that. He's very publicly held talks and speeches and things like that, which 
he's mi- misrepresented the issues at hand and the solutions, and he's also, honestly, he said some stuff that if you sort of know what the problem is, it's very confusing the things that he's saying because I don't think he know what the he knows what the problem is. Um, he's talking about you know a lack of funding and that they can't build enough houses and all of these sorts of things. And the numbers literally just don't add up the way he's working them out. And he's standing there saying, if I can't work this out, how is the government? He, he's insinuating that the government's lying about these their plan and the issue at hand. However, which they would never do. Which they would never do, of course. No, and I, and no. I think- We're, we're, you with, know, we're with you, Albo. We, 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 <laughs> we know you listen regularly to our, our, our podcast. Max Chandler, may that is lying. You would never tell us an untruth. <laughs> I think <laughs> in this case, the plan is more rock solid than Max is making it out to be. Uh, and Max is, like I said, honestly, without being too mean, and I'm trying to pick my words very carefully here, hmm. I, I don't know that Max actually understands the piece of legislation that's set out in front of him. Um uh, he he's reading it out and he's saying things and he's standing there saying, I'm confused and I'm looking at it going, I don't know how you're confused because it's it's written right there. It's not confusing legislation. It's quite plainly written. But anyway, I don't really yeah, hold he a only lot has, of- He only has to put that message across. If he, if he gets it, I mean, a lot of people who are listening to him and take a step back, this is, is not just a... Um, dig it at max nor nor any of the other parties this is just one of the realities of of politics he's up there playing that role so people who are looking to him for information who are really not going to go through and read the legislation um if they're even slightly favorably disposed towards him are going to think well this is confusing you know i've i've heard from the the person i'm following and he's a politician and if he doesn't understand it What's supporting me even trying to to understand it? So all he has to do is, uh, and he would possibly be not particularly uh, flattered by this comparison, but in the same way that uh, Dutton has done a lot of the things with the the voice and saying, well, Mm. look at this, this is confusing and that, and push that as a narrative and got some traction with it, uh, Max Chandler may the he can do the same thing and say, look, you know, who knows what's going on with this this legislation? He can paint this picture of confusion and ineptness and complication and overly bureaucratic, and then he can turn around and say, look, all I just want is for people to be housed and things to be affordable for you, my beloved voter. And that makes sense. So I, I can't fault him for playing the the, the politics. You're right, and I think, honestly, I don't think Max is clever enough to do this on purpose. And again, I'm not, I'm not actually specifically trying to be mean to him. I, I think what you've described is brilliant politics. I don't think Max is a brilliant politician. Okay. I, think, I think he's inadvertently playing the role perfectly. But I don't think it's deliberate, right? Um, and I think that's why it kind of 
uh, sort of gets under my skin because I think he truly believes the things that he's saying. And I'm looking at it going, oh, you know, how are you coming to these conclusions? That's not, you know, that's not how any of this works. Um, and I don't think, I think, look, is there going to be a green wave in Queensland? I, I don't think, I think that's probably the wrong wrong way, wrong uh thing to call it they may win some more seats you're right i think they're aiming for a disruption of the power as opposed to actually being in power themselves i think it's also very it's really worth saying at at this point as well it's really easy being a minority party in parliament uh whether that be on a state level or federal level Yep. No, Max can say whatever he wants. As an example, we'll just use Max. He can say whatever he wants because no one's going to hold him to the things that he says because he's not in power. He's not in. He's yep. not the prime minister. He's not going to be the prime minister. Um, so they can write whatever legislation they want. They can say whatever they want, and they can hoo ha as much as they want because no one's really ever going to hold them to it because they're not in power. Exactly. So. You know, it, it sounds like it's probably quite easy to be a Greens politician or any minority party, um, like the Catters or or, or um, uh, One Nation or the Palmer United Party or, you know, all the rest. Yep. Uh, but I don't think, knowing Queensland, I'm a Queenslander, knowing Queensland is especially outside the capital, especially outside of Brisbane, Honestly, I think the Greens have a, a, a snowball's chance in hell to oh, be elected. But absolutely no chance. Those inner city, inner city seats, like you said, and again, we hate to stereotype, but it is the latte sipping crowd, the you know dog park, uh, uh, university qualified arts degree type people uh, that are their target demographic, and that's who is listening to these people. Yep. Uh, yeah. And look, we're using that as using that as a bit of a, a, a pejorative and, and intentionally using it at, at that way. But I mean, that's that's is also a a generalised way to describe uh, people who might be be actively interested in this type of thing in in politics. Yeah, we're not but, trying to no. to offend anyone. No, no. By, by I, well, actually, look, I'm, I'm I was being a little bit disparaging to be mm -hmm. to be perfectly. Honest, probably 10% disparaging. Not going to lie about that because it does frustrate me that there's not a view that's greater than the, the city. But it is, it is as a descriptor. But if, if the Greens get a seat outside of the urban area, I'll go he. Absolutely. I, 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 I'd, give, I'd give someone, I don't know, 30 to 1 on it. Yeah. I reckon that's probably even too generous, but yeah, because they have gained. Don't don't get me wrong; they've, they've gained in seats in past elections, but they've not like you know the, the the percentage of votes has gone up, but like they're not winning seats. That's the thing, you know. And they're a long. They're also they're a long way from actually winning seats. So as much as they're banging their chest saying, you know, we're going to do it. This is the best shot we got, and all this kind of stuff. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, they might win a couple more seats, but I think that's all that's going to happen. Look, I think they've got a, uh, I think they've got a longer term view, and I hate to um, make the comparison with the Chinese Communist Party's um, 
long-term view of politics. However, it's it's a similar it's a similar mindset. Uh, we've seen them just grow, take a bit, take a bit, take a bit. Um, so if you you've got to learn from all the successful um, parties around the world, and I think within the next um, fifteen years might be a bit sooner, but I think within the next 15 years sooner, the mindset is going to change from people thinking, what are the two parties controlling us thinking, to what are the three parties controlling us thinking. I think it's going to move from bipartisan to tripartisan, and I think they're, they're, committed, to the, they're committed to the cause, they're committed to the process, and I don't know what goes on behind the scenes but I'm looking at what's actually being actioned and said and produced and it looks to me as though there's people with a multi-generational view of the Greens party could be wrong but that's how I perceive it I think I think you're probably right to a to a point but I do think like I said just before it is very easy um, twisting the narrative, not being responsible for anything, and can and can question. You know, w- we've said this in the past. It's very easy being the opposition because all you do is you can question the government openly and freely, and that's easy. And I think right now, whilst we have a Labor governments in in I think every state and territory, um, I think maybe Tasmania is the only Liberal um, state government at the moment, um, and of course a Labor federal government. It's very easy for the Greens to target Labor because they're both left-wing parties, you're going to possibly turn some of those Labor voters into Greens voters. Wouldn't wouldn't you do that, though? Oh, absolutely. If I was in charge of the Greens, that would be my 100% my my target because it's a similar demographic. Um, I think it's it's easy for them now. You know, times aren't tough. When the if the federal election or state governments start turning blue and turning into to LNP the coalition uh, governments, those voters aren't going to be swayed into voting green because they don't like what what the governments are doing, um, and that's when the Greens are going to have a really really hard time trying to get votes because it's sort of swung the other way. So I think right now, sure. But but and the other thing is, the more power you win, the more responsibility you genuinely have. Mm. And it's again, it's really easy to just question everything and be like, "Hey, I'm just asking questions," and and you're not doing that, and 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 sort of changing people's opinions based on on that really simple idea. Um, but once you're in power and you're the ones running the legislation, the questions are coming at you. The question then becomes, can they? actually hold up under that sort of pressure and we don't know because we haven't really seen it before so it'll be interesting you know to see and look probably before the the queensland election next year we may even talk about it a little bit more because you know trying to call an election more than 12 months out without even knowing you know what what's going to happen between then and now is basically impossible um it's almost a waste of time really um but it is interesting let's, let's 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 give it a crack (laughs) <laughs> really you want to do it yeah let's let's uh, well yeah we'll see how things th- see how things change but i'm going to uh i can't remember the number of seats that they 
said they were going to say. But I'm going to I'm going to say in the I, I think what you say is there is there two state um, greens at the moment. Yep. Currently, yeah. Yep, and they're going for was it was it was five seats or four? Uh, they are going for just if you can. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, it was, it was five. My um, my prediction is that they will get at least three, but I'm going to put my money on four, and I tend to agree with you on the shift between uh, Labor over to the the LNP. But given that the Greens are the focus on on this, my money is four out of five seats. In the um, in the next in the next state election, the state election coming up next year. So they hold two seats that aren't included in those those addition. So there are additional five. Yes, yes. So I I'm going. I'm still going for four on that. So that's going to give them six all up. I think it'll probably be, probably be three. But uh, my my money at the moment is on four. Primarily because I don't know what's going on behind the scenes with the Greens, but the way they've been playing this game, I think they're. I think they've got people on their team that just know what they're doing, and I think there's people recognizing the sign of the the, the times. Um, that's my bet. What about you? I interesting. Interesting. Throw out a prediction. So the Queensland Legislative Assembly, uh, Queensland. Just for our listeners that don't know, Queensland uh, only has one House of Parliament. Um, that's a whole thing that we're not going to get into. But uh, there's 93, 93 members. Um, currently, Labor holds fifty two of those seats. The LNP holds thirty four. Uh, Catter's Australia Party holds three, the Greens hold two, and One Nation holds one. I think it's going to swing to the LNP um, because we have had a Labor government for, for since oh, for a long time now, um, and it'll go Liberal again, probably only for one term though. Queensland doesn't. Queensland normally stays red, which is weird. State politics, we stay red. Federal politics, we go blue. I don't know why. It's really weird. Um, and that's kind of part of the reason that this this is quite hard to predict because it is so, uh, it, it, like I said at the start, it's like the Wild West for um, for politics here in Queensland. But I think you're right. I think, look, that I'm going to say they'll win. So all up... Uh, they're running in seven seats, and I reckon they'll win, I'll say, three. They'll win one more seat. Right, so you're going three out of seven, uh, whereas I'm, I'm going um, six out of seven. Six out of seven. That's yeah. a bold, bold move, and I'll go three but out I of seven. I reckon it's going to be five out of seven, but my money and my, my prediction is six out of seven. Ooh, all right. We'll see. What about One Nation? Do you think they'll grow any more? They've got currently got one seat. Um, do you think they'll uh, look? I think they'll hold one seat. It wouldn't surprise me if they get um, if they get another one. I I don't know what's going on with with One Nation. They just seem to have. Um, 
they, they don't seem to have a, this is just my perception, don't seem to have a, a, a strong um, driving force behind them. I think this, the election coming up, they're probably going to hang on to what they've got. I haven't seen anything so far that's particularly going to sway people. You know, they've got some opinions on the, the voice and that, which is going to, imp- going to impact on people. But there's, I don't know, they just don't seem to be interesting and exciting beyond their usual play. What do yeah. you think? No, that's fair. I think they may win another seat, but unless something happens between now and the election, they've kind of fizzled out a little bit. Yep. It's not to say that they won't come back quite strong, but yeah, a bit like the the United Australia Party, they just kind of fizzled out and there's, there's you know, yeah, they, they pop up in the news and that, but there's not a big strong following behind them. Whereas, no. say, like Catter's Party, which is in far north Queensland, um, they hold three seats, and those are basically rock solid. I think the Catters will hold those seats uh, until until they die. Yep. Um, they know the people; they're local, and there's there's a really big, strong personality following behind those guys. Um, I quite like them personally. Oh, they seem to actually they, give a damn. They they, they come over. They really they come do. Over as genuine. You know, it's the whole time that I've been noticing him in politics. Uh, he seems solid. He seems to actually put in the hours and the time. He speaks his his mind. He he talks to he he comes across to me as yeah. You know, all the people I've met in uh, like rural Queensland, I think yep. Yeah, it's no wonder that people are identifying with you. You just have that personality, and I yeah. I think they deserve. I think they deserve the political success that they have. Yeah, and it, look, it wouldn't surprise me. He may even pick up another seat. I don't. Th- they have been in the last couple of elections. They've kind of expanded um, into s- some of those other electorates around those far north Queensland uh, seats, which some of those electorates are absolutely huge geographically, um, like like larger than <laughs> larger than countries in some cases. Um, so. It'll be interesting to see. They may pick up another seat or something like that. But again, I think they're really, really, really selective on their candidates, and it's it's more about the person as opposed to trying to trying to gain power and that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, so, oh look, it'll be as we always, as I always say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> watch this space. It's going to be interesting. Um, Definitely going to be interesting next year as the election starts ramping up. And we'll probably come back and we'll revisit this. Um, but until then, I think it's time for our Two Ticks Town Talk. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. This week's Two Ticks Town Talk, we're heading west. Uh, the furthest west that you can find a publicly accessible town. We're heading to the Shire of Shark Bay, Western Australia, to the town of Denham. This little town has a very interesting history. So, on the 25th of October, 1616, a Dutch explorer... Dirk Hartog and his crew came unexpectedly upon what he called various islands, which were, however, found uninhabited. 
He made landfall on the island, which is now bears his name, uh, just off the coast of Shark Bay. Hertog, uh, sorry, Hartog spent three days examining the coast and the nearby islands before he basically buggered off up north. Um, <laughs> the coast remained uninhabited. And to be fair, it is very barren. Um, I don't think he would have realised the island that bears his name, Dirk Hartog Island, I don't think he would have realised that it was actually an island because it is a, it's a barrier island and he probably thought it was like a long spit or something like that. Um, what, but it's what do you mean by barrier island? What's that? Uh, so there's like Shark Bay uh comes in how do i how do i make you the listeners picture this in your mind so if you imagine uh sort of like a, a, a almost like a w shape so it's not it's not a horseshoe it's like a horseshoe but there's a spit of land in the middle which is where De- denim the town is located but the barrier islands are sort of the islands in the very outskirts that protect the bay from from the ocean proper. Um, it, it doesn't appear, like if you look at a map, you probably wouldn't realise that it is actually an island. It's really long and skinny, but there is a split at its base, which obviously makes it an island, as opposed to a really skinny peninsula. So, so if you're using that W uh, uh, analogy, yep. is it like there's, uh, it, between the three upstrokes of the W, there are two spaces, and it's like there's an island in each of the spaces. Is that what you're meaning? No. So what I mean is, of course, we're on the west coast here. So the W is the land, if you like, and mm-hmm. the bay is the 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 blank space, the void mm-hmm. between the two. So of course, on the eastern side is the continent of Australia. In the middle, there is a peninsula that comes up, which is where the town of Denham is located. And on the outside of that W, that part there, the very top of that is mm-hmm. uh, a big, uh, big, long, thin island, which is Dirk Hartog Island. Ah, and then, it, and then it comes okay. down. So the, the, of course, the ocean. We're we're used to thinking. Uh, eastern coast, but of course, the ocean uh, in Western Australia is is out on the west. Um, they like to call it. They like to say things like "West is best." Uh, I tend to disagree, but maybe we'll change your mind through through this Utics town talk. I think so. I just hadn't heard that term before. Barrier Island. So the coast remained uh, uninhabited by Europeans until the middle of the nineteenth century. Uh, pearls were found in Western Australia and they were discovered in Shark Bay in 1854 by Lieutenant Helpman. It was very helpful. Uh, He was called the Admiral of the Swan River Navy who found dense beds of pearl shell oysters. Uh, They were absolutely abundant there. So the earlier name of the town of Denham was called Freshwater Camp because it was a pearling camp. It's where all the pearlers would live and then they would venture out into the bay to harvest the oysters. The Denham region is the second area of the Australian mainland discovered by European sailors after the western coast of Cape York Peninsula. 
So it does have a very long history. Well, almost as long as as uh, Europeans have been here, um, which is pretty cool. In 2021, the census, there were 849 people that lived in this little town. So probably one of the smallest, other than the ghost town, of course, uh, that we've covered <laughs> in this segment. <laughs> the, the ghost count, the other than count, no one lives there. Um, however, with such a small population of just under 850, it's incredible that during the months of April until September, the area witnesses over 250,000 people passing through the Ooh. Shire uh, on the main Northwest Coast Highway. Uh, and they travel through, and about 110,000 of them actually come into the communities of Ooh. Denham and Monkey Mire. Uh, there's 150 k- kilometers of road linking the main highway with Denham, and it's known as the World Heritage Drive. So, tourism is obviously their main industry around that area. Um, there is an Ocean Park Aquarium is one of the big draws. It's located about 10 kilometres south of Denham uh, and has Western Australia's largest shark lagoon. It's one of the very few places in the country where tiger sharks can be seen and they daily feed the sharks. Uh, and that's obviously a huge draw card for, for the visitors around the area. Well, that can't go wrong. <laughs> Look, they, keep cho- they seem to love these pork chops. <laughs> the other big thing is uh, just north of the town of Denham is an area called Monkey Mire, which is uh, just an absolutely stunning area of the coast. Um, lots of four driving, lots of camping. It's it's it truly is a swimmers and snorkeling and water sports, fishing, all of that. It's like the perfect place in the world. Uh, this however, this is a bit north where they feed for just a bit north. Remember, it is called Shark Bay. So <laughs> if you are going, um, it's worth remembering that. <laughs> Uh, when you get into the water. Now, I do think there are areas that are very safe to swim, but, of course, if you're in the ocean, there are sharks. That's part of fact of life. Um, now, Adit, do you know what Shark Bay, what's, what is in Shark Bay that makes it fairly unique? It's not... As- aside from the sharks. Aside from the sharks. Well, sharks are everywhere. So what is in Shark Bay that makes it fairly unique? Is it some sort of flora or fauna, or is it, it is. something geological? Ah, it is. Well, well, <laughs> there's a bit of a crossover with the geology of the area. You, there. you know what I'm asking, don't you? Like, is, is it is it an is it a plant or is it an animal or is it something in the way that it's structured? If once I tell you what this is, you're gonna laugh at how hard that question is to answer. It, it, hmm. Technically, technically, it's. Uh, flora, not geography. And I know that probably doesn't have you at all because now you're thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Is it something like the uh, largest algal or um, uh, coral 
construction in the the the, the west of Australia? Is it, is it a plant that over time has made up some sort of structure? Yes, it is. You are so close. It's not funny. Oh. So in Tell me. In Shark Bay and in Western Australia. So it's not unique to Shark Bay. We thought it was for a period of time until we actually realised that it's elsewhere in Western Australia. Um, they have uh, these formations that are called stromatolites. I've and what? Yep. Yeah. What stromatolites are? They look like rocks. They look like little boulders. Um, and they're found in Shark Bay, and they were discovered there in nineteen. 19- uh, 1953, so a little while ago, based on the growth rate, it's believed that a thousand years ago, cyanobacteria, which are blue and green algae, began building up the stromatolites in uh, Halem Pool near it's, Halem uh, Station Reserve is in the southern part of the bay, which is probably about an hour's drive south of uh, denim. However, I know that sounds like it's quite far away. There is nothing out there. This is like uh, yeah, extremely, yeah. It, it it's it is just up the road, but also this area is uh, extremely barren. It is very much desert, as you can imagine. It there's there's really nothing around. It's very hostile. Um, these structures are the modern equivalents of the earliest signs of life. So we believe, scientists believe that these uh, stromatolites are one of the earliest life forms that formed on planet Earth. Um, and they've found fossilized stromatolites uh, that have dated to 3.4 billion years ago. Kidding me. Um, <laughs> And they believe these were also found in Western Australia, and they believe that this is the longest continuing biological lineage. So they were first identified in 1956 in Halem Pool, as I said, south of Denham, as a living species. Before that, they were only known in the fossil record. So, 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 stromatolites are technically alive. They are technically alive. So what what it is wow. is they're, they're sedimentary rock formations that are created by cyanobacteria and other types of bacteria um, that produce adhesive compounds that basically cement sand and other rocky materials together wow. in what they're calling microbial mats. And over time, of course, incredibly slowly – these grow in size um, and they're incredibly rare today. They're only found in a handful of places. We literally had no idea that there were any of these still alive on Earth until we discovered them. A lot of them too. It's not like just a couple. There's like thousands of them of these bacterial um, colonies. Uh, But as far as I'm aware, they're only found alive in Western Australia. Well, that's Um, fascinating. And in a couple of different places. But again, this is one of these situations where we'll probably find more if we, you know, go looking for them. Um, I don't think it's specifically unique to to Western Australia. I think it's as more research is done, we'll probably find them in more more places. Um, But it is is a cool kind of unique 
um, a unique thing. Uh, and that that these are actually the reason I decided to pick pick the town of Denham. Uh, not only because it's the most western western uh, town, but also I thought this was really cool. A bit of living history right here in Australia that you can go and see for yourself. As I said, these have been found fossilized 3.5 billion years ago. Um, and there was there's some still alive, but they're it's incredibly slow amazing. to build. So truly amazing. Yeah, uh, that is. If you'd asked me to guess the age, I wouldn't have even come close to putting a getting to billions and that old. Because right? <laughs> what, what, what's, what's the earth? The earth's uh, reputably, was it, is it 4.3? Yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah, something like that. That wow, that's really interesting. So these are one of the first types of life that probably ever existed on Earth, and they're still having a go at it in Shark Bay. So the sharks oh. obviously don't bother them. Um, <laughs> um, as I said, I, I would encourage you, all your listeners, have a look. Um, Stromatolites. If you Google Shark Bay. I'm pretty sure you'll you'll very quickly find find a link to what they look like. They kind of look like somewhere between coral and a rock. They're not much to look at, if I'm honest. Um, they're kind of just like little boulders, as if like a dead reef, you know, like coral that had all been uh, sort of uh, chewed up over time and that kind of stuff. And but uh, of course, they're not coral. They're a totally different thing. Um, and they take a lot longer to grow. So I believe uh, the area where these are found is, is you know, a protected environment now because they don't want people walking on them and, and all that sort of stuff um, because they do take so long to grow. So just like a bit like coral, if you do damage them, you know, that's that's hundreds of years worth of uh, growth that you're setting, setting them back. So, um Incredibly patient, I believe <laughs> these creatures wow. must be. Um, so yeah, very very cool. Speaking that is, of that's very cool, speaking of really ancient things, the Albanese government has rejected an internal push to ban native forest logging. Instead, committing to rewrite rewrite the three decades old national forest policy statement this term. Labor Environment Action Network spokesman Felicity Wade praised the commitment but labelled the native forest logging a travesty in a speech to Labor's National Conference on Thursday. To be fair, actually, this National Conference probably was very entertaining to be at because it sounds like oh. a lot of things happened. It was quite heated by the sounds of things. Indeed. Uh Wade said that as long as the industry continues, and I quote, we undermine the government's policy objectives on ending extinctions and emissions reductions, and we prove ourselves a little bit deaf to the deep environmental concerns of our members. The Albanese government has used the first in-person national conference in five years and the first in Queensland for five decades to set out an agenda for long-term government to drive the energy transition, make early childhood education universal and close the gender pay gap. The push to ban native forest logging was met with resistance within the Labour Party, leading to its rejection. 
This decision comes as the Prime Minister criticised the Greens over the housing bill, which we already talked about, highlighting the differences in policy approaches between the two parties. The Labour Party's stance on this matter is drawing attention as it reflects the complex balance between environmental conservation and economic considerations. I think that's very important, and we'll we'll get into that in a little bit more. The rejection of the proposal banned by the Labour Party underscores the complexities inherent with environmental policymaking. It reflects the party's attempt to navigate between the environmental and conservation and socio-economic interests of various stakeholders. The decision also serves as a reminder of the broader conversations taking place in Australia and around the world about the best way to manage natural resources while ensuring a sustainable future. In 2019, the Victorian government announced native logging would be phased out by 2030. But in May this year, it stated the practice would cease by 2024. Gave them seven months' notice. Wrap it up, boys. We're shutting it down. The sudden announcement caught the timber industry by surprise. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bit of an understatement. Fueling speculation, the decision was swayed by politics rather than science. Victorian agriculture. No. The Victorian Agriculture Minister Gail Turney conceded the decision was hastened by costly legal action taken by environmental groups that it had halted logging in the state's central highlands and east Gippsland regions. Tryon Venn, it's a cool name, hmm. an agricultural and natural resource economist at the University of Queensland, has studied forestry systems in Australia and overseas for more than two decades. He said that native timber production in Australia had almost halved since 1995 by about 2.2 million cubic metres. That number means nothing to me. That's a huge number. Um, But the shortfall has largely been replaced by timber imports from Asia and the Pacific, principally China. He said native timber production in Australia has almost halved, uh, but we import a lot of products from Malaysia and Indonesia. He said those logs were processed and then exported from those locations, like China, back to Australia. He says, we know that plantation timbers and native forest timbers from Malaysia are associated with the decline of the orangutan, the Malayan tiger, and other endangered species to Asia, which we've probably all heard about those sorts of things. Mm. Now, you need to go look at that timber table you bought and wonder where its timber came from. So as the nation grapples with these issues, the dialogue between conservationists, policymakers, and industries in- involved in logging will continue to evolve. The debate over native forest logging encompasses not only the immediate environmental impacts, but also the long-term sustainability and the shared responsibility to protect Australia's natural landscapes. But it can't be understated that there's the logging industry does employ a lot of people, a couple of thousand, and those jobs aren't going to be easily replaced in those areas. There's also a lot of uh, industries that rely on the logging industry for their livelihood. Mm. The economic impact of this can't be understated. It's very easy to just play it off. Ah, that truck driver or that that um, 
you know, the, the, the lumberjack, I guess they still call him, that's out there doing the work, he can go find other jobs. The reality is in a lot of these really, really remote areas, there isn't a lot of economic outlook other than logging. So it's really easy, again, for inner city people uh, to sit there and go, we shouldn't be doing this without some sort of action plan to turn to, uh, you know, uh, logging sustainably. There are areas up here in Queensland between Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast that are um, like a forestry area, but the, these are um, planted. They're like plantations of, yeah. of trees. Yeah. Like I think they're mostly pines um, that are obviously logged, uh, but... It's sustainable. They're logs in, in areas and then they're replanted and, and, you know, we're talking huge kilometres and kilometres and kilometres of, of area. Um, and it is sustainable because that area, that area of land is specifically designated for, the, for this sort of um, development. So yeah. I think we need to have more conversations like that. I, I don't like the idea of cutting down old growth forests, but at the same time, I think there needs to be a sensible conversation about harvesting some old old timber from these forests replanting at the end of the day a lot of these because i actually know a couple of forestry guys um down in tasmania these guys love trees that's their favorite thing yep you can like yeah like they it's their passion you know um they don't like hurting the environment that's not what they're trying to do um they're trying to make money on what they know how to do. And at the same time, they want to look after so that, you know, they're not here just to clear a forest and move on to the next place, obviously, because um, that's unsustainable and then they're out of business anyway. So I'm sure there are bad actors that don't care and they just want to clear out, you know, we've all seen, what is it, um, Fern Gully and all that uh, mm -hmm. growing up. But the reality is a lot more complicated and it's not just about, cutting trees down is bad you know we've got to have there's more nuance to this yep yeah there's a, there's there's a lot more nuance to to that uh, i've found uh i found out last year with the increase in red gum prices probably we probably with uh, as a result of of things like this that i can um go to places like you know the salvo or vinnie's and find furniture that's been made out of uh you know, teak wood and rainforest timber from some of the Southeast Asian ones, and it makes much cheaper firewood. You know, all I have to do is just sort of chop it up, and it's, uh, yeah, it works out very economical for me. So, yeah, I like how this is going. Now that silence is probably you being horrified. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking there, DK. I could hear your wheels turning and think, what the hell? My God. Look. I was thinking, that can't be. That's so much work. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, <what's it? laughs> I appreciate that. Appreciate that stunned silence. But to, to me, it is, you know, what exactly is being. Um, Preserve. Look, if, if the logging can't be satisfied, sorry, if the logging in Australia can be satisfied with plantation timber, then to me, keeping the natural native bush intact makes a lot of sense. Got no issues with that. 
reading, and I, I saw this in the, an ABC article by Tim Lee, which I, th- I think you might have been referencing there. However, this need doesn't seem to be being met. When I read that bit, new um, read that bit about 2.2 million cubic meters, and the shortfall largely being replaced by timber imports from uh, where is it? Tim replaced by timber imports from Asia and the Pacific, principally China. I gotta say that changed that changed my opinion. I'm with you. Old growth forests to me are a last resort. I know from my exposure many years back, back to some people who are in the forestry industry that um, you can successfully and sustainably harvest um, some old growth forests. If you're greedy, you stuff the whole thing. But you mm. can you can do it with um, you can do it with with sensitive planning. But native logging, if you're planting you know, a couple of hundred hectares of blue gum or, you know, even if you've got a, a, a view of the future and you're planting things like red gum and that for the purpose of harvesting, that to me is a natural resource that really, if we can harvest that rather than having it, um, look, I'll, I'll take a, a step back. There's the thing that if it's coming from China, it hasn't been harvested sustainably. Now, yes. on the surface of things, that's unfair. My opinion is, I'll be buggered if I think they're harvesting it sustainably because China has not had, got a great um, ecological record. And in the West, we've uh, we've turned a blind eye to that and enjoyed the fruits of that that demolition. But to me, if we can use our native timbers, which are going to grow well over here, and still harvest them. That to me seems to be an environmentally sensitive move, an environmentally sensitive move, however unpalatable it might be. Because if I'm going to get, as I joked about, teak and rainforest timber and uh, other timbers from uh, Asia Pacific and China, on a global basis, we're doing more damage by not doing native logging. This is another one of those problems that I feel like the gut reaction uh, solution is actually probably going to do more harm to the world in terms of ecological damage and environmental damage than if, you know, the, 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 answer that doesn't seem like it should be the right one which is we continue to responsibly harvest old growth timber with restrictions in place with replanting schedules in place um which they do elsewhere in the world it's not like we're we're reinventing the wheel here um there is obviously a lot of sustainable timber but also there could be more sustainable timber plantations in Australia. We have a lot of land here that could be used for, for this. We have a lot of national parks that, again, we don't really want to be cutting down national parks, but we could be opening some of that up to forestry in a, in a more sustainable way. Um, it's already a really heavily regulated industry, so I don't want to you know make it sound like it's not sustainable in a lot of places. But 
I think this is just one of those ones where it's kind of like, I feel like it, the Victorian government has probably made a decision based on, I mean, they admitted themselves that it's based on these um, legal action that's been taken by env environmental groups. How many of these environmental groups are really aware that the demand for timber isn't going to go away? It's not, you know, no, if you no, say we're banning cutting down trees, all we're going to be doing is importing it from overseas. So, you know, we've seen, you know, I've heard a lot about in Malaysia, for example, how the the environment's getting chopped down for palm oil is a big one, but also for for um, timber. We've seen the same thing in like the Amazon and, and timber harvesting in these old growth forests are destroying the environment for these unique species in the area. I think there's got to be a, a compromise between reducing the environmental damage on these uh, old growth forests and still satisfying the demand for timber, which is only going to increase. Yeah. There's yeah. got to be a balance I, here, I, and I'm I not... I do agree with you. Yeah. It's, it's, like, if, if there was something... Look, if, if, for example, they, if you and I woke up tomorrow and uh, someone said... Uh, uh, there's just been a discovery that uh, the cellulose from sugarcane, if we apply magical process X, produces a substance that is just as strong as, as timber and completely green. I would think, okay, fair enough. I can see that as uh, an alternative. But until there's an alternative to timber, there's no alternative to timber. Yeah, and look, there are composite materials that are doing things like that, um, using byproducts and stuff, waste materials, and they're making these really cool composite materials, and they all look promising and stuff. The problem becomes is that they're not, they're often not very affordable. Um, and That's so, you know, yeah. yeah, you can build your deck out of these composite materials and they last longer and they're easy to work with. And, you know, they're better in every way than a timber deck, except they cost five times the amount. And so for a lot of people, it's a no-brainer. They're going to go to the cheaper option, which is going to be the, the timber, um, which, you know, a lot of pine is sustainably grown. But again, like you said, it's a lot of the, the more, you know, quote-unquote furniture-style timbers mm -hmm. that, are, that are cut down. Um, out of these old growth. Um, I'm quite lucky here because there is, um, I don't know, actually, now that I think about it, <laughs> is this lucky? Uh, there's a lot of farms around here that, you know, will cut some old gum trees down in their field and they'll plant some new ones and things like that. So I guess in some ways it is somewhat sustainable. Um, so I get a lot of beautiful gum uh, timber that I use just for projects around here, uh, just just from local local farmers and stuff like that, at a reasonably uh, affordable price. But you know they did clear the farms, um, which probably isn't that sustainable uh, to begin with to to graze yeah. cattle. So so I don't know. There's got to be a balance here and all this kind of stuff. People aren't gonna they're not gonna give up their timber. Um, unless there's a cheaper alternative, which, let's be honest, probably isn't going to happen anytime soon. Until uh, I can go to, go to Bunnings and um, you know, to, until I can go to Bunnings and look and say, 
this is the this is the timber plywood this is the um you know sugarcane cellulose cellulose plywood they're both uh both the same or the cellulose ones you know 10% more until i can do with that you've got to go with the reality of what motivates people exactly yeah. plain and simple yeah. and this, yeah, this exactly. is what kind of annoys the house what are you going to use and this is what kind of annoys me about some of these environmental groups, none of them have specifically been named in this in this um, by uh, the the Victorian Parliament. They've actually the Victorian uh, government has actually been very cagey about this, and they haven't really re- revealed a lot no. um, about what's going on. <laughs> which you know, yeah, I mean that rubs me the wrong way. Uh, yep. <laughs> I know it does you, and it, it's it is one of these <laughs> it is one of these ones where it's kind of like. I feel like a minority of people that are acting on their emotions because that's where this comes from, right? And, of course, I understand it too. I love trees. I love timber. I buy timber locally to use in my house and around my house because I love how it looks, how it smells, how it feels. Um, It's a natural product and it's beautiful. So I'm a big fan of trees. We go for driving in the state forests around here a lot. You know, we spend – I go hiking and things like that. And so – I want to yep. protect our state forests, our old growth national forests, as much as the next person. But the reality is there's a balance that we got to strike here. You know what I mean? Yep. And I feel like these groups aren't necessarily acting as rationally as they probably could. They just go, nah, not having it, no excuse. We got to do it differently. And, and that kind of rubs me the wrong way. And it's, I think it turns other people off as well from their, from their cause. Um, yep. But. We're not going to solve it this time. Anthony Albanese, we know you listen to this podcast. Maybe uh, get the Victorian government. Ask Dan Andrews to, to be a bit more transparent. <laughs> if he does that, that'll go down in history. Yeah, I don't think that's... Well, I mean, speaking of Australian history... <laughs> I come from a this week in Australian history, we're covering... August 17th to August 23. Uh, I'm just looking at the, the clock. We'll do a bit of a zoom through, but uh, we'll cover everything that I've got down here. August 17th, 1980, two-month-old Azaria Chamberlain disappears at Uluru. Her mother claimed a dingo took the infant, and my understanding is the latest uh, uh, court cases of that verified that um, that finding. It was uh, not a good time all around for a whole lot of people, let alone no. the mother, mother and mother and child. You know, for all the um, it became a a meme, a trope, a whole lot of things like that. But uh, the humanity of it was was really not good, um, and that's uh, that's just a, a an understatement there. Mm. Uh, 1991, Wade Frankham commits the, the Strathfield massacre in Sydney. Probably would have been happy not even having his name in there. So, 1991, the Strathfield massacre happened in Sydney. August 18, 1966, the Battle of Long Tan was a decisive Australian victory in the Vietnam War. The date is commemorated in Australia as Long Tan Day, also known as Vietnam Veterans Remembrance Day. Um, 
1986, Janine Haynes becomes the leader of the Australian Democrats and Australia's first female party leader. This is 1986, so it was a, a, a while, but uh, they got Yeah, there. but not that long ago. No. I should, sorry, I was, I was a bit silent there. The Battle of Longtown, I have so much to say about this, but we're not... We're not gonna. Uh, we this is, that could be a topic for a deep dive. The Battle of Long Tanners is it, incredibly throw a note, fascinating. Throw a note down about it then. Um, um, but yeah, I could talk about this for hours. So <laughs> yeah, look, I, I could. I felt like there was probably stuff you could say with that, given your um, your your, your military uh, history and memory and interest. So yeah, we're accruing a few topics uh, for those deep dives. August 19th, 1820, Joseph uh, Wilde discovers Lake George and names the Snowy Mountains. 1907, the rabbit... Hoof- Very original name, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what should I call this? <laughs> Are they big or they're very mountainous? And what's on top? Snow. Now, let's just brainstorm this. Snowy Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant, Joseph. Oh, you're amazing. Uh, 1907, the rabbit-proof f- rabbit fence is completed. That was um, in WA. It's a state barrier fence uh, called rabbit-proof fence or the state vermin fence or the emu fence. Uh, it was meant to be stopping rabbit. There's there's three fences over there in WA. Um, the original number one Fence crosses the state from north to south. Number two is smaller and further west, and number three is smaller still and runs east-west. Uh, basically, they they threw it up, had a little bit of a sense, but success. But the um, the rabbits still got through. Then they put up another one, and the farms in between the second and the third got pretty much decimated by rabbits, and the rabbits still made it through across the line. They threw up a third one. So my reading of it, it was reasonably successful, but it was not a rabbit-proof fence. Um, Yeah, and when it was completed, um, fence number one, which goes – Basically, the, the 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 from top to bottom of of WA was one thousand eight hundred and thirty three kilometers long, and it was the largest un the longest unbroken fence in the world. Yep. In nineteen fifty, when it was finally finished, didn't work yeah. though. So yeah, <laughs> was it worth it? I don't know. Well, <laughs> it was a lot of work. Look, it was a lot of work, and I suppose you sometimes you've got to give it a crack. So, you know, but bloody rabbits, you know, trying to keep them out is uh, oh, a, futile, a futile game. Oh, it is, yeah. You only yeah. get the few couple and get under, and then literally we know how they breed. 1961, on the August the 19th, Four Corners, the TV current, pro, current affairs program is first screened. On to August 20th in 1857, uh, I reckon I have an error in my uh, thing that I printed out because there's no way the ship is called the Four Corners. 
<laughs> I don't know what's happened there with my notes. I reckon I've deleted something. A ship, which, of course, all of us know in 1857, is wrecked at the entrance to Sydney Harbour, killing 121 passengers. Um, oh, sorry about that. I don't. Uh, I think it was called the Dunbar is what it was okay. called. It, 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 it wasn't coins. called the Four Corners. <laughs> <laughs> 1860, Burke and Will's expedition sets off from Royal Park, Melbourne at about 4pm, watched by around 15,000 spectators. I think it's really cool that people knew the significance of it. You know, so so many times these big these big things happen and it's kind of like no one really knew at the time and it was like, you know, three three blokes gave him a pat on the back as he left sort of thing, you know. But but the fact that people knew this was a big deal is kind of cool. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. That's a, that's a fair turnout for that time too, 1860. You know, 15,000 people, that's a fair bit. Yeah. 1908, on August 20th, um, the United States Great White Fleet arrives in in sydney one of my favorite history it's a very it's a yeah. interesting choice of name however that's what it was called at the time because uh, all the, the, sh- the well, it's because all the ships were painted white that's why oh is that, is that why yeah so the, there was a bunch so that the u.s uh, long story short i won't yep. get too sidetracked they wanted to uh sh- Go off to the world that, you know, um, America is big and strong and and all that. So they had 16 battleships that were all painted white and beautiful. uh, And they sailed all around the world to show off how strong America was and and the might of it and all that. And it's it's the, the fact they were painted white is really important because ships back then used to run on coal. And coal, when you're loading coal, you basically have to do it by hand. Uh, and coal dust is black, obviously, and it gets mm-hmm. everywhere. So if your ship is white and it's not coloured and, you know, stained with coal, it, it is very impressive because it shows how much wow. uh, you you really look after to your, your ship and everything like that. It's also why a lot of ocean liners back in the day may be white above and then they'll have, like, black below. And the black was for when they loaded oh. coal. It did, they didn't have to be so careful because it didn't matter because you wouldn't see it. So. Ah. The fact that the U.S. had 16 huge battleships and they were all painted white and they sailed around the world was definitely a massive flex at the time. It's still very impressive, to be honest. Wow. Oh, very interesting. Bit of of naval history for you. 2003, uh, politicians Pauline Hanson and David Etheridge are sentenced to three years in prison after being found guilty of electoral fraud fraud in Queensland. Uh, Charges are later overturned. August 21st. And we never heard from her again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On August 21st in 1842, Hobart was proclaimed a city. In 1943, Enid Lyons and Dorothy uh, Tangney are the first Australian women elected to the Australian House of Representatives and the Senate, respectively. 1984, the federal budget is televised for the first time. Uh, August 22nd, 1770, Captain James Cook claims the east coast of New Holland in the name of King George III, naming the site Possession Island. Uh, 
1872, the 3200k kilometer uh, Australian overland telegraph line is completed. Now, we've heard, had that overland telegraph line come up in uh, at least one or two of our Two Ticks Town Talks. Uh, yep. It was a significant project and you know, coincided with a lot of gold discoveries and uniting uh, Australia in a communicative sense. 1930, the two spans of the Sydney Harbour Bridge adjoined. Wouldn't you be relieved that that happened? Like, yeah. At least they, well, they lined up, so that's kind of important. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. If you were, if you were the engineers involved in that, you'd look at your thing, you'd say it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen, but nothing says it's going to happen like it actually happening. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, You'd be a bit upset event. if it was. Yeah, oh, if it was, oh, oh. Well, that's happened before with other bridges. They've been out um, and they've tried to, you know, force them together. In fact, no, I won't even. I won't even say it. I had something in my my head that I thought had happened, but I'll I'll have to research that. Uh, 1985, a royal commission found that there was no link between chemical defoliant. Agent Orange and health problems of Vietnam War veterans. So, mm. if a royal commission found it, it didn't happen. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. August twenty third, eighteen ninety five. Bush Ranger James Alper McPherson, known as the Wild Scotchman, dies age fifty three. Uh, don't know how he died. 1966, led by spokesperson Vincent Lingiari, the Gurindji uh, workers and family walked off Wave Hill and began their, began their seven-year strike. Now, we're post, this is a, speaking of another deep dive thing, and this one I did note down as I was um, noting, as I was doing this, the Wave Hill walk-off, also known as the Gurindji strike, Basically, there was a walk-off and strike by 200 uh, Gringy stockmen, uh, servants, their family. started in 1966, and it went for seven, seven years. Um, wow, seven years. That's pretty... Yeah. yeah there was a... There was a the, the bottom line is there was a cattle station at Wave Hill. This was part of getting um, some Aboriginal land rights tied into Gough Whitlam, giving over rights to a piece of the, the land. Uh, a whole lot of details here that I'm thinking could be interesting for a deep drive, a deep dive. And one of the teaser was the event, uh, event was later celebrated in the song From Little Things, Big Things Grow by, by Paul Paul. Oh, Cornelian. yeah. Um, didn't know that at all. That's so, cool. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and Freedom Day is celebrated in August uh, each year at uh, Kalkarinji to commemorate the strike. So, yep, I've noted that down. That may well be um, may well be something that we go into to more detail on that. I thought that was an interesting one before we take a little break and head on to the 4X bottle top question. Now, this one, I'm going to be, I've got a 4X bottle top question and then a follow-up based on that. Um, I'll be pretty impressed if you, you get these, but Ooh, be okay. impressed, impressed with you many times before. The question is, 
What two metals are used to make Australia's silver coins? I don't know, but I'm going to guess that it's nickel and zinc. Oh, yeah, 50% of the way there. Copper and nickel. Copper and nickel. So they're copper on the inside, are they? And nickel coated. No, it's an alloy of copper and nickel, as I understand it, but um, Ah. it still comes out silver because that doesn't. I agree with you. Mentally, you sort of think, "Well, hang on. If you got copper in there, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be brown?" But uh, no, apparently not. Um, And I'll have a little. I've got a paragraph from the Australian-Coins.com website that'll give us a little bit more information. I'll read that paragraph at the end. But the bonus question is our two. Gold coins. Now, remember, there are two gold coins. He says in a magician-like deliberate <laughs> misdirect. <laughs> what do you think our gold one and two dollar coins are? And there's no way in hell I would have guessed this. So, give it a crack. I'm gonna get. Oh, it'll probably. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say it's not gold. They won't put actual gold in them, right? Correct. Um, oh. mm. Because if it's... Mm, I'm trying to... I feel like this is... It's probably... Oh, it's, oh, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I don't know, because it's. it could be like copper and tin, but that makes bronze, doesn't it? So maybe it's like a bronze. Because I'm trying to think of the yeah, colour. No, I'll, but... let, let, I'll, I'll, I'll throw you a... a a, a big hint: It is ninety-two percent copper. So you've you've got that that right. And eight percent of another um, another element. So it's ah, and it's not nickel. Which I suppose obviously not, given we did copper and nickel for the other ones. But uh, and they, I they wouldn't have even come close to picking this as uh, the other element. If that's um, the case, it must be. Because I was going to say zinc, but if you're saying it's not, if that's really throwing you off, it must be something different. So it must be like, I want to say like aluminium, but oh it's probably, yes, is it really? I was going to going to say, think about the lightness of zinc. Not apparently ninety two percent copper, copper eight percent aluminium. And wow, I was going to say something called aluminium bronze. Well, because I, I was like, it, it can't be steel, right? Because it's too hard yeah. and so it's, it's too heavy. Yeah. So then I was thinking, honestly, my guess would have been zinc, but the fact that you said it must be something unusual that you wouldn't guess, I was like, well, then it's probably like aluminium, but I was thinking that would be too soft, but obviously not. No, so I there make, you go. I so, so the paragraph is, right now all circulating Australian uh, coins are made of two different metal alloys, 5, 10, 20, and 50 are made... Sorry, a silvery grain colour are made from an alloy of 75% copper and 25% nickel, uh, typically referred to as copper nickel or CUNI. The other two coins you're going to find in your change, the $1 and $2, are pale gold in colour, made from alloy of 92% copper and 8% aluminium, which is called aluminium bronze. There you go. Yep, exactly right. There you go. 
That is very interesting. There you go. Yeah. I've learned a little bit about uh, the metallurgy of Australian coins, something I'd never thought I'd take away from from this this afternoon. But, hey, that's <laughs> that's the beauty of the, the Forex bottle top questions. You never quite know what bit of trivia you're going to learn and, and uh, you know, how the questions they'll ask you and sometimes they're weird as hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as it helps us out immensely with the algorithms. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you and good night. See you, Nico. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>